Just recently, she started to work on naturalism in relation to metaethics, and we're lucky enough to have sort of instalment of this new project. So, Mary. Thank you very much. Um, so, by way of introduction, I suppose, um, just to put this in a bit of context, in my research I've worked really on trying to be a good Quinean and work out what the Quinean should think about ontology, particularly, particularly in the case of philosophy of mathematics. Um, and in my efforts to be a good Quinean, I've turned out to be quite a bad Quinean because I've ended up saying things that Quine uh, didn't himself say. So in the philosophy of mathematics, I've tried to argue that uh, if you're really a good Quinean and take your ontology from the ontology of science, actually, um, scientific reasons don't give us reason to, reasons to believe in numbers in the way that Quine thought uh, they should. So um, the punchline of that is a good Quinean should really be a bad Quine um, and, uh, and reject things like the indispensability argument for mathematical realism. Um, having sort of uh, not managed there to be a very good Quinean, I've turned my attention to metaethics and I think uh, for those of you who've read the paper you might realise that, that this is carrying on along a theme in that I'm trying again to be a good Quinean, um, take my ontological um, uh, picture from the picture given to us by um, uh, an approach that we get out of Quine's naturalism but what I'm trying to conclude is that Quine's naturalism doesn't really take us where it's sometimes been thought to so rather than saying that our ontological or our picture of reality should be drawn from the picture of reality that you get in the natural sciences what I'm trying to do in this paper is say actually naturalism um, ought to be, Quinean naturalism ought to be understood in a broader way than that. Um, again, it's not something that Quine, I think, himself believed. So, so this is lessons in being a bad Quine, I suppose, is the subtitle. Um, so, what I'm interested in is, is ontology. Um, um, there is claims, and in ordinary discourse, we make a lot of these. There are tables, chairs, and beer mugs. There are prime numbers greater than 100, and infinite numbers greater than any finite number. There are many ways the world could have been, and some ways it could never have been. There are many reasons to study philosophy. There are plenty of good reasons not to torture cats, not least because torturing cats is cruel. There are characters in stories who are more talented than any real person could ever be, and there are some stories that are simply impossible. Just a selection, and uh, some of those raise interesting philosophical questions. And the task for ontology is the theory of what those I really think of as the question of adjudicating which, if any, indeed, of these there is claims we ought to take seriously. Um, so in the past, I'd be interested in particular about the our ontological our, or our existence claims concerning mathematical objects, and should we take those seriously? And I've developed a fictionalist account of those. Um, what I'm interested in today really is um, the there is claims that concern the normative, um, in particular uh, moral claims and claims about practical reasons. Um, so the commitments of our moral discourse. Um, the approach I've tried to take in answering these is um, naturalism. 
uh, where naturalism has the key sort of core idea to it that uh, um, we should really respect the worldview uh, provided for us by natural science and try to try to um, have an ontology that's sort of drawn out of that worldview in some way. Um, as naturalism is developed in various ways, there's probably many, many different naturalisms out there. Uh, Hugh Price identifies two um, strands in naturalism in particular, um, which you see crop up in, with various names. Um, one, Eliatic or so-called ontological naturalism, the idea that when we're tr trusting science to work out what there is, what we should really do is uh, um, think of science as the realm of causal explanation and uh, accept into our ontology only those things that figure in causal um, explanations of phenomena. Uh, so ontological naturalism, Price puts us the claim that we should believe in the existence of whatever figures in good causal explanations of observed phenomena um, and of our experiences and beliefs in general. On the other hand, um, the naturalism that I've most been interested in developing is, is Quinean naturalism, sometimes called methodological naturalism. The idea that uh, uh, the ontology we should be should accept is the ontology of what um, that turns out to be required by science, and that is meant to not prejudge the causal issue. Right? We might think that we might initially think science is in the business of giving, giving causal explanations, so ontological and um, Eliatic naturalism will fall together. But at least that at least leaves it open that science, depending on how we construe it, might give us reasons to believe in things other than causes and in particular in the Quinean picture the the true Quinean rather than my um, bad Quinean picture the true Quinean picture says well science actually gives you reason to believe in a causal mathematical objects so those two look like they come apart um, at any rate whichever way we understand naturalism at least on the face of it many of our ordinary and apparent ont ontological claims become quite hard to place in this picture of what there is um, so as Price puts it, there's a striking mismatch between the rich world of ordinary discourse and the sparse world apparently described by science. The things that we say there are uh, seem to be many more than the things that feature in good causal explanations or even sort of part of our best scientific picture of, uh, of uh, um, the physical things in the physical world. So Price says there's a striking mismatch between the rich world of ordinary discourse and the sparse world apparently described by science, a great deal of work in modern philosophy amounts to attempts to deal um, with some aspect or other of this mismatch. The project is often called simply naturalism. Um, and again, Price calls this the problem of placing various kinds of truths in the natural world. And we can see um, classic statements of this problem for naturalism um, in work that um, first came to prominence in the 1970s. This is Banasaraf's famous paper, Mathematical Truth. Once you have um, a naturalistic picture, the idea that we should believe in the things that fit into a scientific worldview of ourself in, as physical people in a physical world, it looks hard to um, account for mathematical truth within that picture. So Banasaraf says a typical standard account um, of mathematical truth, at least in the case of number theory or set theory, will depict truth conditions in terms of conditions on objects whose nature is normally conceived places and beyond the reach of better 
of the better understood means of human cognition, i.e. sense perception and the like. So mathematical truths look like they're truths not about physical, spatiotemporally located things, uh, meant to be these acausal abstract claim, um, objects. And Benatar says, if numbers are the kinds of entities they're normally taken to be, then the connection between the truth conditions for the statements of number theory and any relevant events connected with the people who are supposed to have mathematical knowledge cannot be made out. It will be impossible to account for how anyone knows any proper number, properly number theoretical propositions. Uh, in mathematics, the absence of a coherent account of how our mathematical intuition is connected with the truth of mathematical propositions renders the overall account unsatisfactory. So we have these truths that look like we want to claim <coughs> their truths, but they, they're truths about uh, what look like non-spatiotemporal acausal abstract objects. Um, if we're trying to fit those in, place those in a sort of scientific picture of ourselves as physically located beings in a physical world, it becomes hard to see how we could ever come to true true beliefs about these kind of, these kinds of objects. Um, and similarly, um, Mackey's famous uh, discussion of the queerness of moral properties, moral truths. Um, J.R. Mackey says, if there were objective values, they would be entities or qualities or relations of a very strange sort, utterly different from anything else in the universe. Correspondingly, if we were aware of them, it would have to be by some special faculty of moral perception or intuition utterly different from our ordinary ways of knowing anything else. Uh, when we ask the awkward question, how can we be aware of this authoritative pre prescriptivity, of the truth of these distinctively ethical premises, or of the cogency of this distinctively ethical pattern of reasoning, none of our ordinary accounts of sensory perception or introspection or the framing and confirming of explanatory hypotheses or inference or logical construction or conceptual analysis or any combination of these will provide a satisfactory answer. We're left again with some weird intuition. A special sort of intuition is a lame answer, but it is the one to which the clear-headed objectivist is compelled to resort. So in both cases, we have a kind of truth, kind of body of what we'd like to call truths uh, that are just difficult to place in a in, in a picture of ourselves as physical beings in a physical universe. Um, so what do we do in the light of this, these kind of placement problems? What we have is the problem of placing a truth that doesn't look like a truth about natural physical objects in a, um, in a scientific setting, in a setting that thinks of ourselves as physical creatures governed by physical laws and so on, the kinds of things that empirical science can find out about. Uh, what do we do when we try to place those problematic truths in that kind of setting? Um, Price identifies three strategies which I've labelled RER strategies. The first is the reduction. We could try and, we've got a problematic truth of mathematics or of moral theory. What can we do that it doesn't look like it's about ordinary the ordinary things that science tells us about, well, maybe we can show that it really is about those things by reducing it. Uh, so reduce the, um, the mathematical truth or the moral truth to some unproblematic truth that science is used to telling us about. Um, alternatively, uh, we could expand the scientific setting, so expand our understanding of what science is able to tell us about. So if our problem is, oh, well, look, mathematical truths don't seem to be truths about physical objects and science tells us about physical objects well maybe that's our mistake maybe science can tell us about more things than just things that enter into causal relations uh, so we could 
um, show that actually our ordinary empirical methods of trying to understand the world around us can bolster up, um, to, can give us evidence for beliefs about things that aren't themselves physical objects. So we can expand what we take to be the domain of the scientific. Um, or alternatively, uh, the other R is rejecting. Uh, we could reject P um, by saying actually this problematic truth um, doesn't fit into a scientific setting and so um, the upshot of that in trying to place it is to say actually it doesn't fit there at all and reject it as, as a candidate for a truth. Um, Price picks out three different strategies there, eliminativism, fictionalism, and, uh, expressivism. So I'll call these RER strategies, unless someone can tell me a better name, which would be, would be good to have. But, um, so you can see these strategies appearing in the literature on, uh, in philosophy of mathematics, when we're talking about mathematical truth, we try to reduce mathematical truths to more um, less problematic truths about the physical world. Uh, my best effort to find something there is, is Philip Kitcher's account of mathematical knowledge. Is really, um, well, mathematical truth is really a body of truths about physical collecting and segregating abilities suitably idealised. Kind of hard to, to do that kind of strategy in, um, in the mathematical case because it seems like mathematical truths vastly um, that... Uh, they're much richer than what could be left, what you could have in a uh, potentially finite physical ontology. But Kitchell tries to do that through appropriate use of idealization and so on. Most popular is perhaps the expansion strategy. Um, so this is behind what we get behind the um, indispensability argument in philosophy of mathematics. So we say actually um, scientific methods, inference to the best explanation and the like. Um, confirm the existence of mathematical objects as well as physical objects that enter into causal relations. And so we can say that the mathematical objects that are abstract do properly belong to the domain of the scientific and what science can tell us about. Um, so we get uh, certainly the Quine-Putnam indispensability argument kind of realism. I've also put early Maddy there as an option because Maddy has a more direct uh, way of bringing mathematics into the realm of the physical by saying actually some mathematical objects are physically located, so there's two different strategies there. Um, and finally, there's the option I've taken in my, my work, which is to reject uh, the statements. So these mathematical statements aren't easy, easy to fit into um, a physical understanding of ourselves and scientific understanding of ourselves in the world. We should conclude from that that uh, they're not really... Um, truths, kosher truths at all. Um, so I've taken, and in the philosophy of, of maths generally, it's fictionalism has been the option that people have, have tended to take there, so I've taken the fictionalist um, option. In meta-ethics, we have analogous strategies. The reduction strategy is something that Jackson develops, make moral truths part of the, um, part of the physical world in some way. Expanding, try and find scientific reasons for believing in the moral claims to show that the moral claims are um, uh, properly something that we could properly know about through methods of investigation that we're used to in the sciences. I've put David Enoch's um, non-naturalist realism as, as his sort of robust realism as uh, the best example of that I can find. So what Enoch's trying to do is say, well, yes, we have to um, moral truths or norm normative truths. Um, 
are out there, they're robust, um, they're not things that are reducible to physical truths, uh, but we can still come to know about them through things like inference to the best explanation or um, indispensability arguments. So, so Enoch thinks that the same kinds of reasons that give us a uh, reason for maybe believing in mathematical truths also give us reason for believing in moral truths through their indispensability in certain um, uh, explanations. Um, and then the uh, rejection strategy, the three that um, uh, the three examples that Price talks about, eliminativism, fictionalism, and expressivism, all of course have their their place in uh, uh, very nicely in uh, metaethical thinking, uh, with Mackey, Joyce, and Blackburn respectively. So those are well-known strategies of of dealing with this problem, this uh, uh, placement problem of trying to place these uh, non-physical truths in somehow a world that we can come to know about through our experience, our experiences of uh, physical things, if you like. Um, Price thinks that these strategies are mistaken. Um, and Price thinks uh, they're mistaken because um, we've made a mistake that um, in the setup of the situation. Um, what Price wants to say is, well, look, these strategies all rely on the thought that there's something special about science, that science is the one true representational domain that tells us what's really there, um, and then everything else has to be has to fit into that. If you get, if it's going to be taken seriously, we have to sort of reduce it or or show that it's somehow properly part of the domain of science. Um, uh, but that all comes about thinking of thinking of science as um, a parad as paradigmatically representational and getting its justification through its representing how things really are in the world. So Price says we think of natural science as a, um, a representational discourse where the truths are true in virtue of how things really are somehow out there, and that's what gives us placement problems because when we come to other discourses, we think, okay, well, they for them to be true, they have to be true in terms of sort of corresponding to some reality, um, and then it's hard to find what, what in the scientific world that those truths match. If we can't find anything for them to, to match, then the temptation is to think of them as somehow lesser, uh, quasi-realist perhaps, um, projected onto the reality, but not really part of the reality that's given by science as a paradigmatic representational discourse. Price says, well, look, this way of thinking all assumes that science is a representational activity and, and that science gets its status for us from, be, from being truly representing the world as it really is in some way. Um, and Price wants to undermine the, the idea of science as having this sort of special character of getting its being vindicated by matching how, how the world really is. If we can question that, if, if we do think that science isn't doesn't have this special representational status, then the question arises as to why privilege science over many over all these other discourses and the push to try and sort of vindicate other discourses through finding their place in science disappears. So why does why does uh, Price think that science isn't representational in the way that we normally might normally assume? This is coming out of Carnap and Carnap's uh, critique of traditional metaphysics. So in empirical, uh, empiricism, semantics, ontology, Carnap presents a picture of uh, theorizing in terms of many different linguistic frameworks, 
where the frameworks have linguistic rules which give meanings to the terms used within the, those frameworks and Carnap thinks that any meaningful discourse um, that we can have must happen within some kind of framework where we have we've given rules that give the meanings of our terms and then we can get going and, and start start um, saying things against the context against the backdrop of these meaning rules. Um, Carnap says look there's no way of meaningfully stepping outside of those frameworks and asking from the outside, are their claims really true? Do the objects that they claim to exist really exist? Because it's only within the frameworks when certain assumptions, things are assumed already about the things we're talking about, that those that questions about are their numbers, let's say, make sense. So once I've given my axioms for number theory, I can then say, okay, is there... Um, are there prime numbers bigger than 100? And I can say, well, sure there are, because it's a, fault, a consequence of those axioms. But if I try and step outside of that and say, oh, they're really prime numbers. Um, well, once I, once I try and step outside, I've not really, I've abandoned the framework rules that give meaning to number talk, and there's no way of sort of um, uh, pinning down, down, there's no way of making sense of the question I'm asking from that external perspective. So um, Carnap says we can't step outside of the frameworks. We have to think of questions using the terminology of our frameworks as assuming, assuming the backdrop framework rules that, that uh, give them meaning. In the, if that's the case, if we can't step outside and ask these ontological questions, are there really numbers, are there really tables, or whatever, all we can do is make a practical choice to adopt one framework over another as a more conveni convenient way of speaking. And it looks like this is going to lead to a kind of pluralism we can talk. We can adopt many different ways, frameworks, many different ways of talking, um, and we can't stand outside of them to adjudicate which of them is the right way of talking. Uh, we can only recognise that some frameworks are more practically useful than others, given the context that we're working in. Uh, so that's Carnap's picture: is to say, okay, well, we can't answer um, external philosophical ontological questions. We can just recognise that there's many different framework rules we could have adopted and the ones that we pick we pick because they seem useful for us and we, we use whichever ones are best suited to our purpose um, now price is um, criticism of uh, naturalism and the sort of representational paradigm is meant to lead on from this um, but uh, I assume as as good philosophers we all know that Quine already stamped on that picture um, and showed that Carnap was completely wrong, right? So Quine, Quine um, had a fairly firm critique of Carnap's picture of uh, linguistic frameworks that really depended on his rejection of the analytic synthetic distinction. So in uh, Carnap's picture, we have a distinction between the framework rules that we adopt to set up a framework that gives meaning to our terms and then uh, claims that can be tested against the backdrop of those rules. Right? So once we've got our meaning, meaning postulates in place, then we can make claims about, um, about the world against the backdrop of those meaning postulates, and those claims can be uh, tested, but we can't ever test the rules that we started with. And Quine's critique of the analytic-synthetic distinction is meant to um, push against that idea that there's this special status of framework rule, non-criticizable, um, not, not immune to empirical testing. Um, so, Quine's uh, objection here is to say, well, look, the fact that we might set up 
ways of talking, set up theoretical framework by starting with some linguistic rules, some framework rules, to give meanings to our terms. That doesn't mean that those rules have any special status as never being, not, not being testable. Um, in fact, Quine says, well, look, when we um, adopt a framework and see that we can describe the world in that kind of way, we can see that as vindication, not just of the, of the theoretical claims of the framework made against the backdrop of the rules, but we see that as empirical vindication of the rules themselves. So this idea that framework rules are not part of the content of a theory that's empirically testable goes away in Quine's picture. We see the framework of theories as a whole as being tested by the by by their um, theoretical successes. So whatever practical reasons we have to adopt our frameworks in describing the world turn out to be um, potentially theoretical reasons to believe that the world is as those frameworks say. Um, does that go for all of our theoretical frameworks? Well, quite, quite no, that's not the case. We quite recognises that there can be things that we say, frameworks that we use that don't express, that we don't think um, are confirmed as a um, expressing a literally true picture of what the world's like. Uh, but Quine says, well, look, when something is, rem is, is part of our most serious considered frameworks, the frameworks of our best science, um, uh, which are the culmination of our best efforts at describing reality, then those ones are the ones that have indicated, the ones that we stick with when the, when the chips are down, if you like. So in Quine's picture, look, the fact that... that um, Meaning is in some sense internal to frameworks, and you have to, uh, you can't sort of set up meanings without setting up some framework rules. Doesn't mean that um, that uh, our choice of frameworks is entirely um, or is in a problematic way a matter of convention. Our choices of frameworks are sort of empirically driven and driven by it by our, our best efforts to answer the questions that. Um, that we use them to answer, and that, that a framework succeeds in doing that is evidence for uh, that its rules were the right ones. So that's Quine's response to um, Carnap, but Price is not convinced. So Price says, well, look, there's no actual argument in Quine for privileging science over these many frameworks that we adopt for many practical purposes. So once we realise that there's many, um, there's many, uh, purposes that we could put languages to and put frameworks to, then um, unless we somehow, Price thinks, unless we somehow um, can show that science has this very unique role of truly representing things, um, we, it looks like we have no reason to privilege science. Um, so once we recognise the range of functions of, uh, of language, then Price thinks that we should accept all, all the frameworks ontologies as on a par. Um, if we privilege exists as used in science as a naturalist in the Quinean tradition wants to, um, that's presupposing that science is necessarily the only ontologically committing game in town. Um, if we drop that presupposition, then we're going to have a, a much deflated ontological picture uh, that's more along the lines of Carnap's original account. So we have existence questions, but they're internal and framework relative, uh, with each framework bringing its own ontology and no reason to privilege science is any better than the others in telling us what, what there is. Um, so Price sees this picture as really falling out of um, Quine's own work um, because Price thinks that Quine actually has, doesn't have the resources in there to really sort of defend the more realist approach to naturalism that followers of Quine, such as myself, have 
have sometimes developed. So, so Price has quite his own position on ontological equipment and commitment and the relation of philosophy to science provides little support for what's become known as Quinean naturalism. The Quinians who sort of are waving the, the Quinean naturalist flag are not really understanding the lessons from Quine. Um, if you read him properly. On the contrary, uh, Price thinks uh, the account that you get from a proper reader of Quine favours or at least open, leaves open the view that's much closer to that of Carnap and that's the view that Price himself wants to defend, which he calls a kind of global expressivism. Um, so that he says once you recognise that science doesn't have this uniquely representational role, uh, the right thing to do is not to say that it turns out that none of our statements um, are genuine representations, it's to stop talking about representation altogether, to abandon the project of theorising about world, world relations in these terms. Instead, Price thinks we should look at theoretical frameworks and, and assess them internally on their own kind of internal terms. Um, and there's a big advantage to this, uh, Price thinks, that once we reject this representational picture, it gives us a way of um, understanding discourses that are in good order without trying to sort of force them into a scientific picture where they, that, they, that they don't really fit into. So with representationalism and that notion of truth making out of the picture, with our semantic notions suitably deflated, we can ask what makes it true that P, with our gaze on other kinds of matters, we can ask what makes it true that causing unnecessary harm to animals is wrong, for example. Uh, requesting some sort of moral explanation or elucidation, an explanation that's internal to that framework of t talking, uh, without feeling any of the naturalist pressure to read this as an inquiry about the material world, or for that matter, metaphysical pressure, pressure about some other kind of world. So Price thinks that, look, this is perfectly appropriate. We end up answering moral questions using the resources of moral theorizing without having to uh, feel the pressure of, of somehow making those truths really truths about physical stuff or somehow really truths about, about some weird domain of queer properties that we ha somehow have some special intuitive access to. No, you can just do sort of base level normative theory and, and talk about the kinds of reasons we normally give for uh, uh, causing harm being wrong, you know, that it hurts them and, um, and so on and, and, and uh, get rid of a lot of... Um, uh, philosophical problems that come out of this sort of placement picture. So that's the nice side, uh, Price thinks, of his picture. But there is, a, a, I think, a, a fairly worrying uh, aspect of this account. So in um, Price's neo-Carnapian picture, we have frameworks, theoretical frameworks, giving rise to truths that are internal to those frameworks, answerable only um, to the internal standards of assertion that work within those frameworks. And that has the positive feature of solving problems of uh, queerness, of mathematical moral truth, let's say. But there is a price here, and the price is that the truth, truth of claims now becomes really cheap, right? Uh, it looks like any rule-governed discourse in which practitioners can display a reasonable amount of convergence on how to go on is going to count as a body of truths on this picture. Um, well, maybe that's okay. Who cares about the terminology of truth? Um, but it looks like, even if we accept that picture and say, okay, well, any framework has, has truths that are true internal to it, we, we sh should still want to say something about what's special about the discourses that we, the frameworks that we actually favour, in particular, what's special about empirical science, mathematics, moral discourse. Um, 
that makes astronomy preferable to astrology, for example, or um, makes number talk preferable to parity talk, where parities, uh, if the abduction principle that gives rise to parities is, is taken to be true, then that says there are only finitely many things. If you have the abstraction principle that gives rise to numbers, that sh says there are infinitely many things. So they can't both be true together, and we prefer number talk. Why is that? Um, why, do we why should we prefer our moral views as opposed to those that strike us as abhorrent? Um, this uh, comes up, um, as I talk about in the paper, in the discussion um, of Maddy's development of the Quinean naturalist picture as the um, authority problem for naturalistic philosophy. So if we start saying, okay, well, other areas of discourse aside from empirical science have their own internal standards and their own claims on truth, then the difficulty is where does that stop? Do we have any point where we can say, okay, well, uh, the claims of astrology just are false in the way that the claims of astronomy aren't, and so on. Um, it looks like in Price's picture, the neo-Carnapian proposal doesn't um, allow us to um, stop this, um, what looks like a fairly disastrous route to go, right? So. Um, the neo-Carnapian position is meant to say, well, there's just all these various frameworks with their own practical purposes, they all have internal truth, and that's it. There's no external assessment as opposed to, well, this is more useful than that. Um, <coughs> so it looks like Carnap and Price seem to have to say, well, in deciding between astronomy and astrology, let's say, it's just astrology, uh, sorry, astronomy has, uh, has been um, more practical for us, we prefer it, but it doesn't look like you can, that there's... Um, the means within there to say that there's something wrong with it, that discourse if we take it um, as having its own internal norms and um, um, the right things to say with it once you're a practitioner within that theory. So that looks like where Price is on this and, and my worry is, well, that's not something I'd like to be happy with. Um, I'm interested in, in this issue really because um, moving into sort of the... the um, Metaethics area, it seems to um, appear in um, for a particular kind of approach to metaethics that, that has a lot of analogies to um, an approach that I find attractive in philosophy of mathematics, and that's Scanlon's um, uh, uh, recent realism about reasons. Um, so Scanlon tries to talk about, tries to um, understand our reason talk, the domain of practical reasons, from a kind of neo-Carnapian perspective. Um, and the perspective he presents is actually very similar to um, the perspective on mathematical truth that um, Maddie has developed in her uh, 2011 book, Defending the Axioms, um, where both look like they're developing a sort of Carnapian picture, but Ma Maddie's picture I think is best understood as as uh, developed within a more Quinean tradition than, um, than that. And I think, I think uh, Scanlon's picture should be understood in the same way. Um, so what I want to argue is that Scanlon's um, realism about reasons and, and Maddy's uh, thin realism about math mathematical objects can be understood as sort of developments of Quine Quinean rather than Carnapian approaches to ontology. Um, and once we... Uh, have a proper understanding of the reasons Quine has for privileging science, that gives us the means to avoid the ex excesses of uh, Pricean neo-Carnapian pluralism 
and also bypass the authority problem that's been pressed against Maddie's kind of view. Um, but once we see this, it, we'll also see that um, this has implications for how we understand naturalism, and in particular the view of naturalism, Quine naturalism as really being scientism, uh, that Quine, I think, himself encourages, uh, looks to be mistaken. Um, so our reasons for privileging science are also reasons, it seems, for privileging our discourse about practical reasons. So, on to uh, Scanlon. So Scanlon starts with a bunch of claims about, realis uh, about reasons that he thinks, uh, if not straightforwardly true, at least um, look like their truth are valuable and we could argue over, over, over their, um, their truth from a perspective that, that thinks that these, these kinds of questions have answers. So for a person in control of a fast-moving automobile, the fact that the car will injure and perhaps kill a pedestrian if, if the wheel is not turned is a reason to turn the wheel. The fact that a person's child has died is a reason for that person to feel sad. The fact that it would be enjoyable to listen to some very engaging music, moving one's body gently in time with it, is a reason to do this or to continue to doing it. It looks like we talk um, in existential terms about the existence of reasons in lots of cases and in lots of cases where we think these are truth of valuable statements and we've got we might think that these are straightforwardly true um, so what should a naturalist make of this Scanlon's uh, approach is interesting in this context because it's um, uh, Scanlon very clearly wants to avoid the pull of the so-called RER strategies and he does this by a, an approach that's subconsciously neo-Carnapian so Scanlon says, I believe that the way of thinking about these matters that, does most, that makes most sense is a view that does not privilege science but takes as basic, basic a range of domains, including mathematics, science, and moral and practical reasoning. Uh, it holds that statements within all these domains are capable of truth and falsity, and that the truth values of statements of one domain, insofar as they do not conflict with statements of some other domain, are properly settled by the standards of the domain that they are about. Uh, mathematical questions, including questions about the existence of numbers and sets, are settled by mathematical reasoning. Scientific questions, including questions about the existence of bosons, by scientific reasoning. Normative questions by normative reasoning, and so on. Um, and thinking back to what Price saw as the benefit of his account, we have something very similar here. The, the claims within a discourse are properly evaluated using the, the internal norms of that discourse, not uh, through using some questionable standard of do they match some external stand, external reality. Um, so uh, this is uh, clearly within the, the Carnapian tradition. Um, and interestingly, within a tradition that, that we see developed in the philosophy of maths as well. So um, Scanlon, in fact, motivates this picture of normativity by, by thinking about an analogous story about sets. So Scanlon claims, if we're, talking, if we're thinking about set of theoretic knowledge, it's a mistake to think that this requires a spooky connection with some robust realm of abstract objects. Um, rather, set theoretic knowledge arises out of a process of starting with um, intu intu intuitive truths and developing uh, general truths, axioms that might fit those intuitions and going back and forward in a kind of reflective equilibrium that systematizes our conception of set. Um, we develop um, our, the, 
the body of knowledge that is set theory through that kind of interplay between intuitions and, and general claims and trying to sort of um, provide an account of set that, that satisfies those intuitions to the extent that is possible. Um, there's no external standard of truth or existence there in set theory, um, if we construe it in that way. Instead, we have internal beliefs that are stable in the process of re refining beliefs about sets to achieve reflective equilibrium are justified as true according to the internal standards of the domain. So there might be bits in set theory where we're not sure what to say. You know, some of, we don't know what the right way to go is in developing our axioms to answer the continuum hypothesis. But we're pretty sure that there's an empty set and if you've got two sets there's their pair and so on. All of those bits um, are stable and part of a body of knowledge that, that we can be happy with as, as confirmed as anything is according to, to um, the internal, internal standards of the practice. So this gives us a form of realism, mathematical realism, but it's not the robust metaphysical realism that's typically associated with mathematical Platonism because we're not saying that the mathematical truths are true in virtue of getting things right about some external realm of abstract objects that for all we do in our internal mathematical theories we could turn out to be wrong about. Um, so uh, Scanlon says the question of whether set theory is objectively true independently of, of us is not a metaphysical question about whether sets are part of the world but a question about whether the domain of sets can be characterised in such a way as to support the idea that every set theoretic statement or at least many set theoretic statements have definite truth values whether or not we could ever carry out the reasoning required to determine what these truth values actually are. So if we think that this process of achieving reflective equilibrium through trading off our intuitions about sets with the general claims expressed in the axioms and um, the various reasons we have for adopting one axiom over another because of its role within uh, mathematical theorising, if we think that those kinds of methods are enough to establish that every claim about sets has a has a truth value, regardless of whether we can whether we can actually find that out, then that's going to justify realism. To the extent that we think that those those methods those debates give us reason for thinking many claims about set theory have objective truth values, that's going to give us realism about sets to that extent. Right? The set theoretic truths are just the ones that we have reason to think are settled through this process of coming to a firm conception of set. So that's Scanlon talking about set theory. Um, it's actually very close. I don't know if Scanlon's been reading Maddie or if he's just sort of heard it second hand through his um, set theoretic colleagues at Harvard. But um, it's certainly very, very close to, strikingly close to the picture of um, what's going on in mathematics that Maddie develops in her um, 2011 book. So Maddie um, argues for. Um, a realism about sets of this sort that she calls thin realism in contrast to the robust realism of traditional Platonism. So there Maddy says that CH or not CH, a continuum hypothesis or its negation is a theorem established by uh, our best methods as a fact about the set theoretic universe. Therefore CH is either true or false. For the robust realist, this appeal to classical logic isn't enough for them without a guarantee that the logic tracks the metaphysics. Uh, the possibility remains that the theorem is incorrect, that the set theoretical universe could be different from what is um, justified within our internal um, mathematical theorising. In contrast, the thin realist holds that set theoretic methods are the reliable avenue to the facts about sets, 
no external guarantee is necessary or possible. So the fundamental diagnostic is this, the robust realist requires a non-trivial account of the reliability of set theoretic methods, an account that goes beyond what set theory tells us. For the thin realist, set theory itself gives the whole story, the reliability of its methods is a plain fact about what sets are. So in Madi's picture, you have realism about sets because you have a discourse, a robust discourse about um, about the sets where there are objectively right or wrong ways of going. Uh, and if there are objectively right or wrong, wrong ways of going within that discourse, it doesn't matter at all whether that discourse really reflects some external objective reality of things. That's not what governs truth within, within set theory. The truths within set theory are given by um, the... Um, what Mandy calls the contours of mathematical depth, what, what it is within the discourse, internal to the discourse, that makes it the case that there's an objectively right way to go on. Um, so Maddy and Scanlon, I think, are on to the same picture of mathematics. And Scanlon says, well, the same picture should apply when we move to the domain of practical reasons. So to the extent that we can reason reflectively about reasons and come to some considered judgments about what we have reason to do, um, then to that extent we should think of our discourse about reasons as warranting, warranting realism about realism, again, uh, about reasons, again, a metaphysically thin re realism. So realism, not realism, reasons are not corresponding to some strange external queer domain of things. What motivates realism about re reasons is there being objectively right ways of going on within an internal discourse about these things. So Scanlon says... There are central cases in which judgments about reasons seem clearly true. If we should reject these judgments, this has to be on the basis of substantive grounds for thinking them mistaken, not on the basis of questions about how we could be in touch with such facts at all. General doubts of the latter kind would be relevant only if normative conclusions could have the significance they claim, only if the facts they purport to represent had some special metaphysical character that would make them inaccessible to us. I see no more reason to believe this in the case of conclusions about practical reasons than in the case of the truths about sets. So we have an analogous picture about reasons that says what grounds are taking these claims about reasons to have truth values is that there, um, there's enough sufficient objectivity internally within the discourse we have about reasons and our um, reflective development of our concept of uh, reason to act. Um, we don't need any more than that for reasons to ha play the role that we want them to play in our thinking. Uh, and similarly, research. So, that's Scanlon's picture, which, like Maddie's, can be understood as a kind of neo Carnapian account. Um, but to the extent that it is understood as neo Carnapian, it looks to face the same kinds of difficulties that we had with Price's view the so-called authority problem, the problem of explaining what's special about the domains we favour, whether sets or reasons, um, as compared with alternatives that have their own internal and objective standards. Uh, so when Scanlon presents his account, he says we should think not just of the domain of science, but a bunch of domains, in particular mathematics, science and moral and practical reasoning. But he's not saying astrology and um, uh, Greek mythology and all the rest. He's, he's stopping with those three, but can he? Um, well, Scanlon does go further than Price does in privileging science to some degree. So he says that um, domains can be accepted as having developing their own truths, having their own internal standards for truth, so long as they don't conflict with science. 
and there what's odd is that there's not obviously the resources in um, a neo-Carnapian picture to, to do that. Right? Why should we prefer science and say you can, you can have other internal domains so long as they don't conflict with that? Um, and Scarlett says, well, domains... So, you know, we, we can reflect, we can reject, um, talk about witchcraft because there's, there's claims within there that, um, that uh, conflict with science. But um, if we have domains that give rise to internal objective standards of warranted assertion and don't conflict with science or indeed with each other, it looks like the scanning picture says we can accept their truths as true. Um, and this is enough, I think, to raise the authority problem in the form of, well, why care about our domains as opposed to conceive, conceivable alternatives? So we see this in the literature in David Enoch's um, Challenge to Scanlon, where he presents uh, uh, the domain of counter-normative reasons. So he says, in the metanormative con context, the perhaps the most useful way of making this clear is by imagining another discourse, or perhaps another community engaging in it, uh, that may be called the counter-normative discourse. The standards internal to the counter-normative domain license claims quantifying over counter-reasons. Those engaged in that discourse treat counter-reasons much as we treat reasons. For instance, they, tell them, they take them to be relevant to their practical deliberation, or perhaps counter-deliberation, uh, in roughly the same way that we take reasons to be relevant to ours. So when they judge that there's a counter-reason to fire, they tend to fire, to criticise those who don't fire, and so on. But their judgments about counter-reasons would sound very re weird to us once translated into reasons talk. Uh, for instance, they think that it's rather obvious that the fact that an agent will cause, that an action will cause the agent pain is a counter-reason for performing it. Um, not a very nice community, I think. Well, the counter-reasons exist. Enoch says it looks like Scanlon's committed to an affirmative answer here within his account. Quantifying over counter-reasons is licensed by the standards internal to the counter-normative domain. Uh, that domain is, we may safely assume, as consistent as our normative domain is. Furthermore, just as normative domain is not in conflict with the empirical scientific one, we'll assume neither is the counter-normative domain. And that exhausts Scanlon's criteria for existence, so um, counter-reasons, it looks like Scanlon should conclude, are as ontologically respectable as reasons are. Of course, they're not as normatively respectable as reasons are, um, so actually on them, those are actually on them are to be criticised for not acting on the reasons that apply to them. But then again, reasons aren't as counter-normatively respectable as counter-reasons are. Uh, so we may be counter-criticisable for failing to act on the counter-reasons that apply to us. So we have these two alternative domains, each of which looks ontologically on a par for uh, Scanlon. What can Scanlon say about this? It looks like, if the position is understood in, as a neo-Carnapian one, it looks like he has to accept uh, counter-reasons as just as real as reasons and just as potentially motivating for those who are participate in the counter-reason discourse. Um, if we try to ask whether we would be right to act in accordance with counter-reasons rather than reasons, um, we can ask that as the internal question of whether we have reason to do what we have counter-reason to do, uh, and we clearly don't have reason to do what we have counter-reason to do, so we can say, no, 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 there's no reason to act that way. But we're in a difficult sort of um, uh, parallel uh, with the counter-reasoners because if we try to, they, they can look at us and say, well, they have no counter-reason to do what they have reason to do. If we try to step outside of both perspectives and ask whether we should join the reasoners or the counter-reasoners, it looks like Scanlon 
Uh, with Carnap has to view this as just a matter of mere practical choice of preference, um, with there being no domain independent standpoint to assess those approaches. Well, Enoch wants to use this as um, a reason for rejecting the thin realism about reasons and defend a more robust real realism that would give us one unique domain of reasons and rule out the counter reasons. He models his argument on a um, uh, on mathematical arguments for robust realism there for Platonism, including an indispensability argument. In the philosophy of maths, I've argued, as has Maddy, that the indispensability considerations don't really bolster mathematical realism there, bolster uh, robust realism. Uh, maybe Enoch's right that we could use those kinds of considerations to bolster a robust realism about reasons that goes beyond the Scanlon picture. Uh, I'm going to suppose now that that doesn't work. Um, so suppose that we, um, the indispensability arguments fail there too. Does that mean reasons and counter reasons just have to be considered on a par? Is there no way of privileging our reason discourse? Well, I think there is a way of privileging our discourse in this picture and preferring that discourse over others. Um, and to find a reason, we have to go back to try and understand the elements of the Quinean picture that led him to privilege apparently natural science. So according to Price, uh, Quine's naturalism doesn't give reason to privilege um, science as opposed to um, any other language form. Um, and I think Price is right that there's no explicit argument in Quine for, for privileging natural science over all else. Um, but if we look to the Quinean picture to see why he looks for science, I think we can find some reason for privileging um, uh, certain discourses over others that, that aren't necessarily science. So um, Quine's reason for privileging science comes really from his understanding of the place of natural science in our inherited uh, worldview, an inherited worldview that we, we have to live with, we just can't set it aside. Um, so where does science come from? Science is common sense uh, codified, really. So we don't break with the past in science, nor do we attain standards of evidence and reality different in kind from the vague standards of children and laymen. Science is not a substitute for common sense, but an extension of it. The quest for knowledge is properly an, effect, uh, an effort simply to broaden and deepen the knowledge that man on the street always in, already enjoys in moderation in relation to the commonplace things around him. Um, so science has its privileged role in our in the Quinean worldview because science is our ordinary knowledge sort of codified and made better. Uh, but science isn't the only thing that's that. Um, there are other things potentially in our inherited worldview that are the result of starting with commonplace knowledge and, and improving and getting better with it. Um, so when Quine gives his argument for <coughs> privileging science, he really... Um, is giving an argument for privileging our inherited world, world view. So he says the naturalistic philosopher begins his reasoning within the inherited worldview as a going concern. We can't throw that away. We have to work within it. He tentatively believes all of it, but believes that also some un unidentified portions are wrong. He tries to improve, clarify, and understand the system from within the busy sa sailor adrift on Norak's boat. So what does that tell us about why we privilege science? Um, we don't privilege science over other potential frameworks that could be available to us 
um, because science is something somehow specially representational or anything like that, but because we simply can't do any better than work within the worldview that we've inherited. Um, so in Maddy's neo-Quinean view, um, the framework of mathematics, and in particular uh, set theory, deserves our attention because it has this sustained position in our worldview that astrology and the Greek myths don't have. Right? Um, we have a tradition of thinking about sets and, and developing this and, and, and set theory um, remains important to us in, in helping us do science and describe the world and so on. So that framework is part of our inherited worldview in a way that um, uh, Greek mythology is no longer. Um, so we trust the judgments of science because when it comes to reasons to believe, we can do no better. Um, Quine's naturalism requires us to be non-sceptical about the epistemic work norms at work in scientific theory choice. Um, so if we have reasons uh, to believe something by the lights of our best reflective scientific standards, then that's all there to it. There is to it. We can question individual judgments within those frameworks, but we can't stand outside of the framework and ask uh, things justified according to our best scientific standards, really justified. But if we're privileging science because we're in this position where we can't stand outside because we have to uh, accept its claims, then surely I want to say the same goes for our other considered relatively stable aspects of our inherited worldview. So our inherited worldview doesn't just include our scientific beliefs. Our inherited worldview includes our reflective judgments about practical reasons. If there's no place to stand from where we can say, I know this is what our best efforts tell us, we have reason to believe, then surely it looks like there's no place to stand to assess outside of our internal picture to assess what we, uh, our, the results of our cumulative best efforts at discern, de determining our reasons to act. So when we ask Enoch's question of why privilege our reasons rather than the counter-reasons of an imagined alien culture, um, then it looks like the Quinean naturalists should appeal to their history as these are the things that are the result of our, con the, um, our considered judgments that we've re reached through our collective best efforts at trying to decide how, to, how we ought to act. And these are vindicated in a way that counter-reasons are not by their continued presence in our inherited worldview. Um, so it looks like a Quinean methodological naturalist, so not Quine it seems, ought to conclude that we have as much reason to be realist about reasons to act as we do uh, about our reasons to believe the claims of science. So what I want to conclude then is, to the extent that moral truth can, as Scanlon thinks, be grounded in truths about practical reasons, uh, when we're trying to be Quinean naturalists, we don't need to look to empirical science to ground these truths. I find a place for morals in the world, the world of causes described by empirical science. Once we take seriously the demand of Quinean naturalism to work within our inherited worldview, it looks like uh, we should find that the domain of practical reasons already has, it, has its place. Thank you.